Well, it is a privilege this morning to uh, introduce Dr. Ware and to invite him to our pulpit. Really, is the kind of the culmination of our focus on the cross. And Dr. Ware is the T. Rupert and Lucille Coleman Professor of Christian Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ware is a highly esteemed theologian and author in the evangelical world. He went to Southern Seminary from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he served as the chairman of the Department of Biblical and Systematic Theology. Prior to this, he taught at Western Conservative Baptist Seminary and Bethel Theological Seminary. Dr. Ware has written numerous journal articles, book chapters, and book reviews. And along with Thomas Schreiner, he co-edited Still Sovereign, a book that each of you should pick up, just a reminder of the importance of the sovereignty of God over every aspect of life. He also authored many other books, and I mentioned a few this morning. We have a few more on the back table. I would encourage you to pick those up and just uh, delight in, in, in the, the truths reflected there that he's written on. Our Dr. Ware is also married to his wife, Jody, and she has had the privilege of coming, or we've had the privilege of having her come uh, and minister to us uh, several times in our women's conferences. And uh, So that's been a delight. He has two daughters, one son-in-law and three grandchildren. And if you were here on Friday night, Philip DeCourcy also he has uh, had a new grandchild, and so I was kind of throwing down a bit about, you know, I'm now in the camp of one grandchild, so it's like, mine is cuter than yours. Uh, well, Philip came back and really let me have it after that. So um, a little, little, uh, little, have a little more um, temerity maybe this morning. So Dr. Ware not, and I have not, have not compared our phones to see who's the cutest grandchild. <laughs> I won't say who I think will win that contest. <laughs> now, on a more personal note. Dr. Ware has been a great blessing to our church over the years. He's been a key speaker for a marriage seminar that we did. He's spoken at our SOLA conference and also several other men's conferences. And we are very grateful for his willingness to take time to be a benefit to our church when the demands on his time are so great. Now, I would also like to say that it's a joy to see Dr. Ware's outline this morning because it's longer than most of mine. Dr. Ware's a warm and gracious man whose love for his family, love for Christ, and love for God's word and his love for the church are abundantly evident. He's a spiritual soldier who has been fighting the good fight of the faith for many years. And I know that you will be blessed and strengthened as he comes to minister the word to us this morning. So let's welcome him to our pulpit. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Chris. And uh, Pastor Ron also has done a lot to prepare me and my coming here for this. And uh, you know, it's just wonderful to work with capable people and, uh, and people who are just gracious and, and uh, show their care for you as well as, as, as much as I want to care uh, for, for you here. So it's a, it's a joy. Uh, I finished uh, 25 years of teaching at Southern Seminary. I'm beginning my 26th year. And boy, what a privilege to be at that school. The Lord, I don't know if you know the story, but it had gone completely liberal. It was horrible. And God, in his mercy, brought it back. And it is uh, now, you know, the leading uh, solid conservative seminary in the country, uh, and largest seminary in the world, to my knowledge. And, uh, and the Lord has just, you know, brought a faculty there that is solid, conservative, loves the Bible, loves the Lord, loves missions, loves the gospel, you know, just all these wonderful things. So praise be to God for that. And uh, so I bring greetings to you from Southern and just know that you have friends in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who are very much on the same page with you here at this church. Well, what a joy to be a part of this conference in talking about the cross of Christ. What a privilege. So my, my message this morning is, is a little bit uh, broader in scope than the ones you heard from the other gentlemen who were here, uh, taking a, more of a, a framework idea 
of understanding the nature of the atonement and the necessity of the resurrection uh, within which you can fill a lot of pieces. But th this is the broader framework. So I hope you have the outline. It'll help you follow along, I guarantee you, because we're going to look at a lot of passages. I'm not working through just one text, but kind of putting a lot of things together. So the nature of the atonement and the necessity of the resurrection. First of all, introduction, just what happened on the cross. Uh, was this a mere example of a good life that ended tragically? Some people think so, that that's really all it was. Uh, was it an expression of God's love yet devoid of a display of God's wrath? Again, some people think that. I mean, God is love. He's not angry at anybody. He has no wrath, they would say. I don't know if they've ever read the Bible, but, you know, that's, that's what the conclusion they've come to. Uh, what is the significance of the resurrection of Christ? How does the resurrection connect with what transpired on the cross? That's a key question. What's the connection between the, the, the death of Christ for sin and the resurrection then that follows? How does the Bible express both the nature of Christ's atoning death and the necessity of the resurrection. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. So, first of all, beginning with the nature of Christ's atoning death. To account for the atonement, you really have to bring in three theological themes or factors which together provide the answer to the question, why the atonement? Why the cross of Christ? Each one of these three factors is individually necessary. You wouldn't have the cross of Christ without each one of them, and only together are they jointly sufficient to account for the cross of Christ. So I don't know if, you, if you're aware of that, that phrase, individually necessary and jointly sufficient, but it's one that's used a fair bit in philosophy. And it simply means that there are certain things which in and of themselves are necessary for the outcome, but just that one thing or just those two things won't do it. You have to have the full set. So they have to be jointly sufficient to bring about the outcome. Uh, an example would be, uh, an internal combustion engine, right? To have combustion take place, you need three things. Each is individually ne necessary. You need fuel, so don't forget to fill up your tank. Uh, you, you need air, which is easy to come by. It's out there. Uh, and you need friction or heat to do it. So you have to have a battery when you turn the key that something would ignite the fuel then in your pistons to get the thing going. So those three are individually necessary. You take out any one of them, and you won't have combustion. But when you have all three together, thanks be to God, drive home today, you know, you turn the key and it works. So they account for, they're sufficient for combustion. So that's the idea here, is that these three factors are individually necessary for the cross, but only together do they account really for why the cross took place, why Christ died on the cross. So, the first of these three is humanity's sin. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a sobering thing to start there, but it is absolutely essential that we begin at this point, that we are sinners before God, and really the sin that we have committed, we need to understand in three ways as we think about what sin means to us. The first thing is that sin is universal, the universality of human sin. So Romans 9, 20, I'm sorry, Romans 3, verses 9 to 23, uh, give expression to that in probably the best uh, way you can find anywhere in the Bible, so compact and full. So Paul writes in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Romans, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, Jews and Greeks is the Bible way of talking about everybody created, all human beings in creation, because you're either a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you're a Gentile or a Greek. It's just two categories of people. And so this, this comprises the whole of the human race. So again, he charges that both Jews and Greeks, that's all of humanity, are under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who has done good. There is not even one, says Paul. And then he concludes this in verse 23, where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So indeed, everybody is in this category of sinner. There's no exception. Christ, a human who has not sinned, but all in Adam are sinners. Now, by the way, in Romans 3.23, when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that, that phrase is a little bit confusing. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, one thing it cannot mean is this. It doesn't mean that you fail, you're a sinner, because you fail to attain the level of glory God has. Because None of us could. It's impossible for finite creatures to attain the level of glory God has. We will not have that in heaven. You know, Adam did not have that before the fall. So when he says, all have sinned uh, and, and fall short of the glory of God, here's my paraphrase of that. All have sinned by failing to ascribe to God the glory that is exclusively and rightly His. All have sinned by failing to ascribe to God the glory that is exclusively and rightly His. How many people have done that? We all have done that. We want to take the glory to ourselves. We want to get the credit. We want to get the recognition. We want to be the ones who figure it out and, and you know, chart the course for our own lives. We want to go independent of God. We do not want to give glory to Him for everything. And indeed, that, that applies to all in the human race. So, the first you know, aspect of our sinfulness is the universality of human sin. We all are sinners. Secondly, is guilt and condemnation that's charged to everyone because of our sin. Guilt and condemnation charged to all of us because of our sin. So, for example, in Romans 5, verses 16 and 18, Paul writes this, the gift, that is the gift of Christ, is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So indeed, Adam's one sin that Paul has just uh, commented on in verse 12, that we all participated in that sin of Adam in, in some uh, uh, mysterious way, we all participated in Adam's sin and, and, and because of that, that one sin of Adam was our sin, and that has brought to us condemnation, Paul says. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, so then as through one transgression, that is the transgression of Adam in which we were involved, there resulted condemnation to all men. So indeed, sin has the sentence of condemnation. It has the sentence of everlasting judgment. I mean, we don't like to think about this, but it's just true from Scripture that the consequence of our sinning is never-ending punishment, never-ending uh, suffering that will take place for all those outside of Christ and would be true of us were it not for God's saving 
uh, work in Christ, which we'll come to in a moment. But, but just realize this is where we all are as sinners, deserving condemnation. If you think, my goodness, that sentence seems too much, you know, to, to charge people with everlasting uh, condemnation for sin against God. Well, you fail to realize the greatness, the glory, the majesty, the, 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 the perfection of God that we despise, that we um, belittle, that, that, that we mock in our disobedience and our hard-heartedness. If we could only see His infinite greatness, we would understand that sentence is just it is exactly what we deserve as sinners. So indeed, sin has brought this to us. Again, just a couple other confirmations of this. In Romans 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, so outside of Christ Jesus, what, what is our position? We're under condemnation. So indeed, thanks be to God that that's removed in Christ, but that's our status as sitters under condemnation. And then Ephesians 2 verse 3, very sobering statement. Paul writes, among them we too, that is we Jews as well as Gentiles, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and, and of the mind, and were by nature, that is by sinful nature in Adam, children of wrath even as the rest. Isn't that a sobering phrase? children of wrath. So we stand before God as those who deserve His outpouring of wrath upon us forever and ever. That's our condition. And then the third element of sin that we need to take into account, not only is, is the universality of sin true, we're all sinners, we're all guilty and condemned before God, but here's the third thing. We can't do anything about it. In and of ourselves, there is no escape from our sin along with its guilt and condemnation. So you might think, well, why? This, is really a, this is really a terrible condition to be in, but certainly I can do something to correct it. Sorry, you can't do anything to correct this problem. You think, well, can't I, you know, live a life that God would look at and, and would consider admirable and, and it would, would vindicate me and, and, and acquit me of, of the sin and guilt that I have? Nope, you can't do it. Here are some passages that indicate that. Romans 3 verse 20, Paul writes, because by the works of the law, works of the law meaning trying to keep the law that God has given, the law that prescribes for us how we ought to live, by the, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, acquitted, declared not guilty, uh, in, in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What the law does when it comes, among other things, it not only provides a perfect standard for how we ought to live. You might remember Paul in Romans seven twelve says the law is holy and righteous and good. So there's nothing wrong with the law. It's a perfect standard of righteousness. But when that law hits my nature, what happens? My nature that says, no, I don't want to keep that law. I revolt against it. I'm defiant against it. And this is what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, when the law came and said, you shall not covet, what happened in me? Coveting of every kind. So sin, I'm sorry, the law awakened within me the inherent rebellion of my heart because of sin. Uh, you know, just a, a childhood memory that, that makes this very vivid to me. I remember a day walking to school. I was in the fifth grade. 
Uh, Spokane, Washington is where I grew up, and the school that I attended was just three blocks down the street, so I would usually walk to school. And uh, walking down the street, I noticed ahead there was a patch of sidewalk that had just been re-cemented, repaved, and... Uh, and then there was a string around it to mark it off. And honestly, if it, was just for, if it was just the string and the sign hadn't been there, I'm sure, I'm, I'm just confident I would have walked around the cement and just, you know, gone on my way. But the sign did it to me. You know, it was hanging there on the, str on, on the string with this bold, these bold letters, colorful, bright, bold letters, underlined, exclamation points, do not walk on the wet cement. So in my fifth grade boy's heart, I said, I won't walk on the wet cement. I'll just run through it, which I did. Plop, 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 and went on to school. Now, the neighbor lady saw me do this. She called my mother, whom she knew, and, you know, and I... If, if you've ever seen Leave it to Beaver, where he gets pulled by his ear, well, that's what happened to me. My mother took me back at the end of the school day to apologize for this, and she called the company. It was all smoothed out, so everything was fine. But the, the point of the illustration is, wow, I mean, I just know what this did in my heart. As soon as the law came and said, do not walk on the wet cement, oh, my heart says, you're not going to tell me what to do, right? Now, I know none of you can relate to this, you know, but, uh, but that's what I experienced. Yeah, I mean, this is just in us, isn't it? We do not like being told what to do. We don't, we don't want God to tell us what to do. We, we have this inherent uh, uh, rebellion and defiance of our heart. So the fact of the matter is, even if God puts a law in front of us that says, if you keep this law, you'll, you'll be an obedient child of mine, we wouldn't do it because of sin. We can't do it because of sin. Here's another passage, uh, Galatians 2, verses 16 and 21. He also makes this crystal clear. Verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified, that is, acquitted of our guilt, uh, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be declared righteous, will be vindicated, will be acquitted of their sin before God, not by keeping the law. It cannot happen. And then he says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Do you get the point of that? If there's any other way that we could escape the guilt that we have brought upon ourselves by our sin, then Christ didn't have to die. I mean, I just think of that, that time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cried out to his father, sweating as it were drops of blood, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. Wouldn't you think if there was another way that the father would look with pity upon his son and say, okay, let's, let's go to plan B. It'll work also. But here's the thing. There is no plan B. There's no other way in which we could be delivered from our sin except through the Father sending his own Son. This is the only way. And by the way, Jesus then is the only Savior. No other religious leader could be Savior. Because they don't qualify. They don't have the qualifications that only Jesus has as the God-man. So only he could save. Uh, if there was any other way, then Christ died needlessly. But the fact of the matter is, 
He did what had to happen if we're going to be saved. Okay, so in our sin, we then realize everyone's a sinner. It brings upon us guilt and condemnation, and we can't do anything about it. Now, moving on to the second point, it only gets worse in terms of, you know, what we're facing as human beings, and that is the holiness of God. So not only are we sinners and we can't do anything about it, but God as holy, cannot let guilt go unpunished. No amount of our works can possibly satisfy God's holy demands against us. So God as God, who is holy, cannot pretend that sin didn't happen. He can't sweep sin under the carpet. He can't ignore it. Uh, he, He can't let bygones be bygones. You know, He cannot do what sometimes we do as parents, and that's just turn our heads so we don't really see what we actually see, you know, in the offense that our kids do. And, uh, you know, we ought to call them on it. And we really ought to. I mean, we ought to help our children learn that there are consequences for sinning uh, so that they will learn that that's true with God. So God's instrument to help them learn that is us, parents, to, to assist with that. So in any case, God cannot overlook, ignore, set aside the sin that we have committed, he must deal with sin or he is not God. He is not holy. And, and indeed, so this is a, 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 you know, a, a fact that is just uh, <coughs> a stubborn reality that nothing can change. We are sinners in the hands of a holy God, an angry God who is angry against us in our sin, as Edwards, Jonathan Edwards uh, famously preached. Here are just a few passages. Exodus 34, 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Deuteronomy 7:10, he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Romans 1:18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much? Ungodliness. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So indeed, we realize that God as holy must judge sin. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all ungodliness of men. And so indeed, we stand before God, given our sin, given his holiness, as absolutely hopeless, Nothing we can do facing the certainty of everlasting condemnation. But there's a third point, right? A third aspect of the atonement. Yes, our sin. Yes, God's holiness. But third, God's mercy. God longs to show compassion and to restore sinners. So indeed, he is a God of holiness and justice and, and, and righteousness, but he also is a God of love and compassion and kindness and mercy and grace to sinners. So we read, for example, in Exodus 34, 6, this is God speaking to Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Then God passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, don't you love that word, abounding in steadfast love and truth. 
So indeed, God abounds in this and wants to express his love and his mercy to sinners to see them delivered from their sin. Now, by the way, this is interesting, that abounding in steadfast love and truth, there is a Hebrew translation of the New Testament. Did you know that? So the Hebrew is, the, of course, the, what, what the language that the Old Testament was written in. But for Jews, for Israelites, they, they need a translation too, like we have it in English. They have it in Hebrew. And there's a Hebrew translation of the New Testament. And in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Guess what the translation is in Hebrew? Uh, abounding in chesed va'emet, which is the same Hebrew words that are used in Exodus 34. So indeed, Jesus, just like, just like his father, Jesus exhibits abounding in steadfast love and truth, uh, abounding in grace and truth. So th this is the quality of God as well as his, his uh, uh, holiness, justice, and righteousness, and the wrath that is exhibited through that. Ephesians 2 verse 4, remember verse 3 ends, we were children of wrath even as the rest. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So he goes on and develops then the saving work of God because of his great love for us that he has expressed uh, in Christ Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So indeed, the mercy of God, uh, his, his grace toward us, his, his kindness and compassion and his love to us is expressed in the cross of Christ. So these three factors then together provide the answer to the question, why the cross? Why the cross? We're sinners, and we can't do anything about our sin. Secondly, God is holy. He must judge our sin. But in His mercy, He designs a way in which He judges our sin in His Son. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that glorious? So rather than us paying for our own sin, which if we paid for it, we would pay forever, Jesus, the God-man, pays for it in one instant. It's paid for, done forever and ever. So all three of those are necessary uh, for understanding the cross. Now, I want to take those last two, the holiness of God and the mercy of God, and expand just a bit more with you on the necessity of these two. They're both necessary, absolutely, individually necessary, jointly sufficient, you know, to account for the cross, all three of those. But these two in particular have a different kind of necessity. And I think it's important to see this, to just to revel in again what God has done for us uh, is helped when we see this. So let's take, first of all, the holiness of God, the necessity of the holiness of God, I would call an absolute necessity, an absolute necessity of God's holiness. That is, there are no circumstances in which the holy demands of God's just judgment against our sin can be set aside. No circumstances in which the just 
the holy demands of God's just judgment against our sin can be set aside. There is an absolute necessity to God dealing with our sin to satisfy His just demands against our sin. So, it is not an option for God to just say, you know, let's just forget it. Let's forget you did that. Let's forget you've sinned against me. I'll, I'll just, you know, wipe that away without any penalty for sin being paid. Oh, no. He cannot do that. God must judge sin. Hence the cross. I mean, the cross is not just the love of God expressed. It's the judgment of God expressed, which we deserved carried out in his judgment against his son. Do you see it? So indeed, that has to happen in the death of Christ. He has to bear our sin in his body on the cross if we are going to be delivered from the sin that otherwise would bring us his condemnation. Instead, he lays it on his son. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So, the, the holiness of God then is an absolute necessity. God must judge sin. The mercy of God, however, is a contingent necessity. The word contingent simply means dependent. It's dependent upon something else that accounts for it being there, being what it is. So the, the mercy of God is necessary for the atonement, but it's a contingent necessity. It's a dependent necessity. What is it dependent upon? What is it contingent upon? Answer, God's sovereign free will to express mercy that he need not have expressed. Isn't this amazing? He doesn't have to save. He does have to judge, but he doesn't have to save. My goodness, this is just startling, isn't it? So, just think with me for a moment. In uh, Romans 9, 15 and 18, Paul repeats this phrase. Romans 9, 15 and 18, the sobering words in which he quotes from Exodus 34 God speaking to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, I, I submit to you that those are words you would never find in the Bible. You never do find in the Bible in relation to God's holiness. With, you know, I, I, I will be holy in one case, but not in another. I will be holy with one person, but not with another. No, he is always holy. He cannot but be holy. But when it comes to the display of his mercy, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I, I, will, I, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is free to choose to whom, when, in what way he shows his mercy. I mean, you see this in, in, uh, in Romans 9, 13 also, which is part of the context of Romans 9. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You will never find a statement, with, with Jacob I have been holy, with Esau I have, I have been unholy. You'll never find that in the Bible. He's always holy. But you find, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated, which means this, that though God has the attribute of love, expressing it 
is under his sovereign will. He chooses when, where, to whom, how much, to what extent. His love is expressed. And so indeed, that it has been expressed in Christ to bring about our salvation is wholly his sovereign, gracious will. It's amazing. I mean, in Romans 9, uh, at, at verse 11, it's really interesting because he says about Jacob and Esau, before the twins were born, before either had done anything, anything good or bad, um, that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works. It has nothing to do with what Jacob and Esau do. Nothing at all to do with that. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So notice, wh why is favoring Jacob and not Esau what God does? Because of his purpose according to his choice, according to his calling. So it's all of God. So indeed, my friends, it's just a very important thing to, to have in mind is to realize God is not obligated to save anyone. Here's another evidence of this. There is no salvation plan for fallen angels. Has this ever occurred to you? You know, according to Jesus in Matthew 25, 41, hell was created for whom? for the devil and his angels. God never intended to provide a savior for fallen angels. They stand condemned. They're, they're going to hell forever. I mean, they're still active in this world now as demons, but they're going to hell forever and ever. So indeed, I mean, you have to ask the question, was this one just too hard for God to do, save angels? I can save descendants of Adam, but I can't say, no, of course not. This is God being God who chooses. I will have Mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he chooses not. There's a statement in Hebrews 2 where it says that God gives help to Abraham. And in the context, it's clear that it's saving help. Right around verse 14. Somewhere right in there. God gives help to, to Abraham, but he does not give help to, to, the, uh, to the angels. God gives help to the descendants of Abraham, but he does not give help to angels. So, indeed, there's no, sa no salvation for fallen angels. So we realize this is all the work of God. We see then that God's work to extend saving mercy to sinners is based upon his free and uncoerced choice to do so. He is sovereign in the bestowal of his grace. Sovereign in his uh, choosing to extend mercy to whom, whom he chooses to do so. Hence, the expression of his mercy, necessary for salvation to be true, to be sure, is contingent necessity, contingent on God's good pleasure and free choice to extend this mercy as he chooses. Well, this brings us now to capital letter C, the cross as the full expression of God's holiness and mercy. Boy, you can see this, can't you? The cross then is where holiness is vindicated the, the, the sin that we have committed is paid for in Christ. And so God is satisfied with what happened in Christ. He bears our sin in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. Uh, and, and in this, uh, God is propitiated. That is, he is satisfied by the death of Christ. Uh, nothing else needs to be done. And we are expiated. Expiation simply means we don't bear the guilt anymore. We, we, we don't any longer... Uh, are, we're no longer responsible to have to pay for our own sin because Christ paid for it on our behalf, paid for it for us. So indeed, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What a joyous thing to realize. Yes, holiness is vindicated. Christ's death paid fully for my sin. And then, of course, mercy is manifested. He sent Christ so we don't pay for it ourselves, which would involve our paying for it eternally. Christ paid for it. God designed his son to bear our sin in his body on the cross precisely so that we could receive then forgiveness of sin, his imputed righteousness, and grow into the very likeness of Christ in which we will live with him forever and ever. Holiness vindicated, mercy manifest in the cross of Christ. Okay, this brings us to the last part of the outline this morning, and that is the necessity of Christ's resurrection. Now, for this, I want you to turn for just a moment to 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. So far, we've seen kind of the framework for the, the cross of Christ itself. The necessary factors were our sin, God's holiness, and God's mercy. And that accounts for why Christ died. But then, why, why the resurrection? We, we get it that Christ died for our sins, why does the resurrection have to follow? So notice in, in 1 Corinthians 15, first of all, that death and resurrection are the two parts to the gospel. The good news is not only that Christ died for our sins, but also that he was raised from the dead. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared. And then he goes on to give many examples of his appearances. So notice there are two parts to the gospel. The way this should be understood is, first of all, Christ's death is the first part of the gospel. He died for our sins. And then notice that Paul says there's biblical support for that according to the Scriptures. No doubt he has in mind, I mean, surely this must be the case, Psalm 22 Isaiah 53 would be very likely candidates from the Old Testament, according to the Scriptures, that he would die for us. So Christ died for, the, died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and he was buried. So empirical support, biblical support, empirical support. You don't bury living people, you bury dead people. So he was buried because the guards determined he was dead, and they went, they went and buried him. And then the second part of the gospel, he was raised on the third day. Notice, according to the scriptures, no doubt Psalm 16 that Peter quotes in Acts 2, he did not allow the, his Holy One to undergo decay. He was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he appeared, empirical support. Uh, dead people don't appear. If, if you're alive again, you appear. So he appeared to all these people. Okay, so the gospel is, notice it's equally Christ died for our sins, and he rose again the third day from the dead. So both of those are essential to the gospel. So the question is, why is the second one essential? Why can't it be that Christ died for our sins, and he remains dead, but he's still our Savior because he died for our sins? Why is the resurrection necessary? And that it is necessary, we know this from verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. So notice Paul says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what is it 
that requires that Christ be raised from the dead if, in fact, our sin has been dealt with? That's the question. Okay, so follow with me on the outline. Sin is to us a twofold, twofold problem. It is, first of all, a penalty that we cannot pay. The wages of sin is death, right? It's a penalty that we cannot pay. And secondly, it is a power we cannot overcome. It's both of those things. It's a penalty, so there's a legal issue with our sin. Legally before God, we're guilty and deserve to die and deserve condemnation. But it's also an existential reality, a subjective reality. That is, sin has invaded our natures and has polluted our natures and controls us. I mean, we in ourselves, apart from God's work through Christ and the Spirit could only do one thing in life, and that is sin. We can choose how we sin, but all we can do is sin, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 6 to 8, the mindset in the flesh, that's an unbeliever, does not subject itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So uh, every unbeliever is in this category. They cannot please God. So indeed, sin, sin is both this legal issue of guilt before a holy God and pollution of my nature that controls me, that dominates me, that makes me a slave to sin. Secondly, uh, no, I didn't make this clear. So then, and then what is the consequence of the guilt of our sin? The wages of sin is death. And what is the greatest power that sin has over us? Death. Right? I mean, sin has lots of power over us. It can, it can make you bitter and revengeful and angry and lead you to steal and all kinds of things. Sin can do horrible things in you, but the one thing it can do to you that you have no recourse over, and that is it can kill you, right? No matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, when you die, that's it. <laughs> you, you don't have any power to reverse that. So indeed, sin's greatest power is death. Now, Capital letter B, Christ alone defeated sin through his death on the cross. First of all, he paid, he alone paid the penalty for our sin fully, and no other payment would, surf, would suffice. So indeed, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, uh, Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10.4. So you think, well, what about that sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Didn't that remove sin? Answer, No. It didn't, not in, it, not in and of itself. The only way that those sacrifices worked, the only way they were efficacious, is because they were tied in the mind of God to a future sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So it's tied to that future payment that Christ made. So really, all the forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament is like, here's my analogy, it's like buying something, do you see the scare quotes? Buying something with a credit card. How much do you actually pay? How much money do you shell out when you buy something with a credit card? You take that shirt out of the store, you're not charged as a thief. Why? Even though how much have you paid for it? Nothing. Zero. But you're not charged as a thief because you've signed a, a slip, at least that used to be the way it was, right? Where you agree to make a future payment. And therefore, it's yours now because of an, an obligation you have agreed to of making a future payment. So here's how it worked in the Old Testament. Is God the Father signed every credit card slip, as it were. Every time a sacrifice was made and he forgave sin, he signed the credit card slip and said the payment will be made 
in the future. By whom? By his son. So Christ paid the full penalty for our sin. A mere man could not pay our, the penalty for our sin. A mere man, uh, you know, if, if a man, if God, if God had created, say, another human being, another Adam from the dust of the ground and had kept him from sinning, could he have been our Savior instead of sending his own son, the eternal Son of God? The answer is no, because a perfect man, if he bore our sin, he would pay for our sin the same way we pay for it if we pay for it ourselves. Well, how do we pay for our own sin when we pay for it ourselves? Answer, everlasting judgment. So indeed, this hypothetical second Adam could not pay for our sin and be done with it. He would always be paying. It would never be finished. What's the difference with Christ? He is the God-man. So the payment that he makes as a man, taking our sin, dying the death we deserve to die, is a payment in which he gives his life and he is the God-man, so his offering is of infinite value and can pay for our sin in one action that we could never do, no other human being could ever do on our behalf. So he alone is the one who can pay the penalty for our sin. And then, secondly, he's the one who conquered Satan and sin's power. You can see this in Colossians 2. He defeated the powers of darkness. The, the, uh, Satan, who had the power of death, he defeated him in Hebrews chapter 2. So, indeed, Christ paid the penalty for sin completely, and he, and he conquered the power of sin completely in his death on the cross. So, capital letter C, the efficacy of Christ's death for sin is vindicated and demonstrated through the resurrection of Christ. So, follow the logic here. If Christ paid the full penalty uh, for sin, and that penalty is death, what is the only way it can be shown that the penalty is no longer being paid? Answer, resurrection, right? I mean, if he remains in a grave dead, he's still paying. Because what is the payment for sin? Death, right? So the only way it can be shown, it's done. The payment is, is, is made in full is if he then rises from the dead. So the resurrection vindicates and demonstrates that the death of Christ worked that it was efficacious. Same thing with the power of sin. If Christ conquered completely the power of sin, and sin's greatest power is death, what is the only way it can be shown that Christ has overcome sin's power? Answer, resurrection. Indeed, Christ being raised from the dead shows sin no longer has power over him that it had in his death. He has conquered that power and now provides for us the basis by which our sins can be forgiven and the power of sin broken as we put our faith in Christ. So indeed, penal substitution, Christ paying the penalty for our sin is the great accomplishment of the cross by which alone Jesus could be raised from the dead having paid fully for sin's debt, having conquered fully sin's power. What a Savior is Jesus. Now I just want to ask you, are you trusting in Christ? Are there some of you here that are hearing this who have not yet put your faith in Christ? And I just got to ask you, why in the world haven't you? I mean, there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. And he is the Savior. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you don't need 
82 remedies if one works and it works well. And, and the other thing to rec recognize is any other proposed remedy doesn't work. The only way you can have your sins forgiven, the only way you can be freed from the power of sin in your life is by putting your faith in Christ who then forgives you of your sin, acquits you before God, and works within you by his spirit to remake you from the inside out. And in the day to come, that will be completed in its fullness. So what's keeping you from trusting in Christ? Put your faith in Christ today. Don't wait there's, there's, it's really crazy to wait. You don't know what's going to happen uh, later today, tomorrow. So put your faith in Christ. And for those of you who are believers in Christ, here's my admonition to you. Grow in your love for Jesus. Look at what he's done. Grow in your love for the Father who designed sending his Son to, to accomplish this work. Grow in your love for the Spirit who brings the reality of Christ's death on the cross into, into your life by, by awakening faith and helping you become more like him day by day. So grow in love with the triune God and live your life increasingly for his glory. May, may God help us to, to experience this and live it out in increasing measure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had of being able to look at these glorious truths of the atoning death of Christ and his resurrection. Help us to live our lives in ways that truly would bring honor to him. We pray in Christ's name, amen.